You're listening to Tiger's Eye, episode 17. second of the day and night is a moment of razor-sharp tension. I have never been so exhausted. Back when Hrau was watching over me during my sickness, all that was expected of me was to survive, to push through. Tonight I must play a part in a grand theatre of cruelty, and should my subterfuge ever be suspected, I have no doubt that these lions will tear me to pieces. Yet, as punishing as these performances, I would not trade places with any other cat on board. I have found the best way for me to live on this ship is by expression of boredom. If I am fidgety and inattentive, I get fewer suspicious looks. In my travels around the ship, perched upon the shoulder of Captain Redcoat, I have had to let my eyes relax as I see how they treat these slaves. I cannot show how much I am writhing inside. Time and again I bite back the bile that rises in my throat or I scream for them to stop to let these tigers and jaguars be. I never see Hrau. In part I am grateful, for if our eyes met, I do not think I would keep the sobs held within, but I imagine her down there, under the deck, nonetheless. There is, however, a small chance she has escaped at some point. If I have not seen her, then there is no absolute certainty. It is a tiny hope, but I hold to it. Weeks go by. I dare not keep a visible log of the mornings I awaken to, in case this mathematical intelligence is discovered. However, I count and remember as best I can, so I have a rough idea. Eventually, the captain begins to tire of showing me off. My clinging becomes more of a nuisance than a talking point. She leaves me in her cabin. This is always within my cage, firmly locked but I have been examining and tinkering with the fastenings. My confines were designed for large rodents or birds, not someone like me. Over many days I twist off two thin metal loops from one of the handles and straighten them. It takes a great deal of bending my hand into painful positions and blindly working at the tumblers inside the lock. But eventually, I am able to pry it open in a way that does not break it. The moment I do this, I am filled first with joy and then a terrible fear. The cabin doorway could at any time swing open and I will be discovered. If this occurs, 
I have already resolved to play my part extra mischievous and create a miniature chaos as my recapture takes me all over the room. But it is likely that if I survive the encounter, the cage will be changed for a more secure one, and my escape will be over. Rather than venturing outside now, I must gather resources and understand what is at my disposal. I focus on the contents of the cabin itself, which I have been eyeing for many sleepless nights. Under the bedding in my cage is the bracer. Fearing the captain would inspect its secret pocket, I removed it on my first night, and she has not noticed its absence. But I need more than a little armor and deadly poison, so for that I venture out into the room. The captain clearly keeps more than her share of the booty. With exotic flowers, ivory, and ceremonial clothing adorning her private collection. But I also spy weapons. Stolen from those now chained in the ship's hold. My heart pounds as I search through a crate of blades, clubs and axes. And near the bottom of it, my fingers close around familiar shapes. Reverently, I withdraw the bone knives Harau carved for me. Stained now with the blood of the Brujo that I clumsily attempted to defend her from. As well as this, I rifle through the tribal masks that Redcoat has arrayed here. I find Harau's. And the little hope I had that she is not on this boat, but back behind us in her own country, weakens to a thin trace. Gritting my teeth, I lay it back down, trying my best to leave things how I found them. My hand falls on a small wooden mask beneath it. This seems to have been carved to fit a child of one of the cats. His fastenings are loose as I gingerly pull it over my head and peek through the eye holes. I recall trying on the enormous headdress of the old tiger in the ruins. It felt absurd to be behind that frightening visage, yet there was security as well in taking on the aspect of a warrior. With this cat-like face over my own, I feel a little more of the bravery I so desperately need to take action against these lions. I pull it off and inspect it, examining the intricate detail, its whiskers and nose. It is not a tiger, nor a lion, but something else, familiar. With a start I realize the creature it most resembles is the mongoose. Whoever carved this did so for their child. For play or formal ceremony I do not know, but certainly to lend them courage. And what could be more small, brave and fearsome than that horrible, agile, screaming little beast? I freeze as I hear paw steps in the halls outside the cabin. I fight against my wobbling limbs as I must decide in a split second what to do. I dash back to my cage, bouncing from the bed to the table and carrying the knives and the mask. 
I cannot take a chance that these treasures will not be moved away from me, or I from them. Barreling through the cage door, I shut it behind me, thrusting my reclaimed tools under my sleeping blanket, alongside the bracer. The catch is still unlocked, and the cabin door is opening. If I leave it, then my subterfuge will be discovered, and almost certainly my weapons. I arch my arm out of the cage and struggle with the lock, crushing my fingers under the metal. There is a click, and I snatch my hand back inside as the captain enters. I then bring up both hands and stretch them out to her with a pleading face and an endearing whimper. She bends down in front of the cage, her green eyes wide and her purring a rumble of thunder. She unlatches the cage and we play on the bed a while. She is, in her own way, quite astonishing, terrible and beautiful. And I hate her. I cannot stop thinking about what I now have hidden. I must act fast. I have seen the key holders on my shoulder journeys around the deck. Younger lions with large rings hanging from their belts. My being out of this cabin and roaming free means nothing on a ship full of slavers in the middle of the ocean. I have no idea how much venom from the green snakes would dispatch one of these. But it is ludicrous to believe I could, even with the quietest of footfalls, kill every one of these lions. So many creatures on board, besides me, cry out for freedom all day and night. It is them that I must help. My plan is thus simple. I am a thief and an accomplished one. I must embrace this to survive once again. I draw a straight line from my cage to the cabin door, to the halls and decks of the whale, and a single key holder. I will kill him with the poison I have and the claws Haram made me. I will wear the mask of the mongoose. I will take his keys and make my way below decks. There I will seek out Harau and free her. And if I am supremely lucky, then nothing will kill me whilst I attempt this. If I am not lucky, at least I will have died doing the right thing. There is a terrible roaring and the sound of struggle coming from outside. The captain pricks up her ears. And I pray that a revolution has begun. If the slaves are already breaking free, perhaps I will not have to go through with this. Perhaps I will not have to overcome such impossible obstacles. The captain shoves me back in the cage and leaves. Immediately after, there is the sound of a colossal explosion, and then howls of pain. I recall the brass cannon on the deck used to threaten the slaves with, and listen intently, praying that it was not Harau who has been hurt. There are many roars and growls, and the sound of dragging. I wait for many splashes, 
I have seen slaves cast overboard for sickness, injury or disobedience, and these struggles sounded large. Only two splashes come eventually, which I dearly hope means the rest survived, though they will be captives once more. So this task still lies before me. I cannot escape from the imperative for me to escape. There is irony in there somewhere. A thought preoccupies me as I await the captain's return. I open my bracer and look at the vial of poison inside. Could I kill her? The door opens and Redcoat paces back through angrily followed by a deeply unpleasant and cruel lion with a mohawk. I remember on our journey to the ship, the captain was further back down the line, leaving me alone in my cage up front. These lion had paced alongside me, and his eye had fallen on the rosary around my neck. I dare not meet his gaze, in case he saw the humanity behind my eyes. So I did not fight hard when he took it from me. I recall my abuelita placing this around my neck. There are so many dangers out there. He will watch over you and keep you safe. Because it was hers because she would like to think it was protecting me. And because I have worn it most of my life, I did not give this to Horao. It was the last piece of my old home that I could keep close. Right now it swings from Mohawk's belt. I have seen this one's treatment of their captives, and he is the very worst of the bunch beating down anyone who flashes him a defiant eye. He is obviously a gato of some standing and command, but from the captain's demeanor, he is clearly in trouble. Once again, I do not know what is said between them, and I sincerely wish this was not the case. It's a nice collection of flowers you have in here. You've got a regular greenhouse going. Oh, they're not for me. I take the cuttings back for the gentry. They're positively cuckoo for the botanical peculiarities of the New World. Each of these little beauties is worth a body or two of the kind we have in the hold. That sounds like a sweet deal. Then why haven't you turned your whole trade to that? There'd be a lot fewer hiccups of the kind we just had if all we were moving was daisies. Well, firstly, because the demand has to be kept high. If I brought back boatloads of these, the scarcity would plummet. Along with the asking price, I'd run myself out of business. That is why my contemporaries and I keep it small scale and personal like this. Secondly, because I pay you a considerable wage to ensure that what just happened does not happen. Oh, God, how many times... You can't rule it out. The savages are going to run riot when the mood takes them. That fight is in their blood. Are you attempting to convince me as to the obsolescence of your role? No. I've got the ship in hand. 
We're going to play it like we did last time. We can't break their spirits until they show them. And now that I've cleared out two of the troublemakers, their vulnerability is made plainer. Those are coming out of your pay, by the way. We lost one of the crew just now, Stubbs. Currently, you're up on the deal. I have to compensate his family and have someone explain to Stubbs' cubs that Daddy's throat was torn out by a dirt worshipper. I am up on nothing, and it's coming out of your pay. They learned their lesson today. I made sure of it. Tonight we'll start my next stage. Just like clockwork. Two or three days from now they'll have fixed who's in control. And they'll be as docile and compliant as kittens. Strongest way to make the point without killing any more of them than we have to. And, as a little cherry on top, it keeps the boys happy. So it does. And that's what you want right about now. Not them are getting skittish about these waters. They know about the pride of Cortez sinking right around this point. They're superstitious. They think they've seen the widow under the waves already. I've never seen her once. Not so much as an oversized fin. And this is my sixth passage across this lane. I don't believe in her either. But they do. It's my job to keep their minds on their work. And warming their bellies against those primitive heathens is the quickest and best possible way to do this. Playing chess isn't working for them, then? Why, you don't like my methods? How could I like them? Well, luckily I don't need you to like them. Just give me the okay. Keep them in place. I'll keep them in place. You're dismissed. As the male leaves, the captain lets out a long sigh, and without looking back at me, she curls up on her bed. As she sleeps, I think of the poison under my blanket. I think of the sensation of piercing the brujo's side and doing the same to her. After a while, I wonder why the thought of this vengeance does not fill me with excitement and determination. Days pass. I make excuses. I am feeling weak and tired today. I shall escape tomorrow. The captain is away for too long. I cannot risk discovery. It is day. I will be seen too easily. It is night. I would wake the captain. I curse myself for this over and over, but the sheer enormity of what I have planned overwhelms me. I am once again just a little boy, and I am so far from my home. A sudden loud crash wakes me from a doze. This ship is shuddering. It is night. The captain is sitting up, <coughs> snatching up the lamp that just fell to her floor. She bolts from the room, and I am alone, 
roars and growling filter in from far off. There is not a second to waste. Whatever this is has Redcoat so alarmed that it must serve as a diversion and my best chance. I extend my arm up and work the catch. My cage door opens and I slip on my bracer, fixing the claws in place. My fingers shaking once again, I pull out the venom and pour it onto the points. It runs down the length of the blades, coating them in a vibrant yellow. It smells musky and acrid, and I keep it far from my hands, eyes and mouth. I had not thought of this before. Her sense of smell is amazing. Any lion that does not, for some reason, catch my scent will doubtless detect the venom. No matter how fast and quiet I am, I cannot linger while traversing the decks and galleys of the ship. There is another violent shudder as something enormous collides with us. I pull down my mongoose mask and steal myself flexing my arms and legs and preparing to move at great speed. This is it. I must escape now before the captain returns. I spring down and pad across the boards, opening the door and peeking out. There is no sign of any lions and I close it behind me to be left standing in the corridor. I know they rode out to the deck well and sneak through making what I feel is very little sound with my bare feet upon the timbers. They shake once more and I am now wondering what could be doing this? Have we run aground? Have we been attacked by pirates? The roars in the distance certainly sound like there may be a battle on deck. Another thought hits me. Could it be a sea monster? Considering what passes for elephants in this world, I have no doubt that their oceans could be home to equally gargantuan beings. I emerge into the air to find it is close to dawn. Sprinting to the left, away from the shuddering, I go to where I have seen keyholders congregating. Nobody is there, and in the quivering lamplight I can see the dark shapes of lions over on the far deck. They are staring over the side and maneuvering the brass cannon and their rifles to bear down on something below the waterline. I creep over and look out. In the first rays of the sun, I can see a shadow under the water. I marvel at its immensity as it glides past until I realize that the shadow just keeps on going. Whatever is down there in the ocean is impossibly huge. And if it wants to take this boat down, then everyone on board may be doomed. I turn to see a lion leaning over the railing to catch a glimpse of this leviathan. He has not seen me. His mane is back in a ponytail and he has a multicolored scarf around his neck. A ring of keys dangles from his belt. I could attempt to lift them from him without being detected.
No. If he sees me, smells me, feels my movement, he will kill me in a second. This lion's profession is the cruel trafficking of slaves stolen from their homeland. He deserves to die. I choose to kill him as I had intended all along. Repeating my movements back at the ruined city, I rush up and thrust my claws into his side, piercing the shirt where his blue jacket opens. He does not roar or cry out. His eyes go wide, and he sinks down to the deck. I pull my claws from his bleeding flank and recall my feelings over the brujo before. This is not the same at all. I look down into his eyes, expecting to feel a grim satisfaction, or else nothing whatsoever. And I see them white with agony and fear. His ragged breath comes in little gasps. His body is beginning to stiffen and contort with pain. I realize my breath is matching his, and I am becoming overwhelmed with panic. His ears are flat against his head, and flecks of foam are dribbling from his mouth as he gasps, clawing at the deck. He murmurs something that might be about his mother. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. He makes no move to attack me, and I reach out trembling hands in a clumsy attempt to comfort him in some way. He recoils in horror and turns away from my face, hidden beneath this mask. He shudders and is still. And I feel a small piece of myself departing this world along with him. I cannot take this back. Dully, I retrieve the ring full of keys and regard this fallen lion's body. It will not do to leave him here and have my presence discovered, but he is far too big and heavy for me to drag away or lift up and over the side of the ship. Pathetically, I pull a tarpaulin from a nearby rowboat and cover his body. It is as though I am putting him to bed. Every few seconds I forget what I just did, and then the reminder comes crashing back in. Dazed, I step back around to where I know the slaves are led for storage. The lions on deck are clearer now and I can make out redcoats striding around, barking orders with precision that contains her own panic. But all are too busy to see me creep down the steps, clutching at the keys. Would I have done that to the captain? To the one with the mohawk? Almost certainly. Could I do it now? I do not know. My eyes adjust to the darkness as I creep into the hold and finally see how these cats are kept chained down and laid so very low. The fire begins to return. I must set them free. 
Some of them growled in fear and alarm as I step among the narrow bunks. One looks at me with absolute hatred in his eyes. It is the red furred brujo. He clearly recognizes his enemy through the mask. I step away from him, suddenly very afraid of what he will do if freed. The lions may not be my greatest threat here. A shot rings out from above, echoing round the ship. The brass cannon is firing down on the shadow in the water. Every cat before me reacts with a sudden burst of fear. As I make my way forward, I feel a familiar gaze. I look up to see Rao. My heart pounds. My spirits first soar that I am not alone and then plummet back down to see my tiger here in this place. That hope that she had escaped is extinguished and replaced with a thread of potential that we may win our freedom today. And I wonder if I am still the same little boy as when we last met. have been listening to Tiger's Eye, written and edited by Alex Shaw, with a full cast. Miguel and Mohawk, performed by Alex Shaw. Captain Beatrix and Grandmother, performed by Loretta Saylor. The main theme was Agent in Shanghai, composed by 1M1 Music of Shockwave Sound. Black Vortex and Whimsy Groove, performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Protean Fields, provided by TabletopAudio.com. Our special Patreon sponsors and contributors this month were Dan Mayer, Ian Hopwood, Megan Hopwood, Erish Travers, Nick Grugin, Joel Robinson, Russell Osborne, David Garcia Abril, Maureen Foley, Ben Hayes, Stefan Gardinia, Kieran Datchler, Lorraine Chisholm, Livio de la Cruz, and Scott Corzine. If this episode got to you, give us a review on iTunes.